and welcome back to another episode of On Coaching with Magnus and Marcus. I am Steve Magnus, and I am joined by my good friend and colleague, John Marcus of High Performance West. John, another day. Hey, we're still here, and we're still coming to you. Giving you what that you is want. right. So before we jump in, I just want to thank our sponsor, Final Surge. Uh, if you haven't listened and you haven't heard about them, Final Surge is a coaching and athlete platform that allows you to log everything you're doing, your athletes, um, write workouts, um, give them workouts, and keep track of everything. It's basically your one-stop shop for uh, your coaching and training needs, and it keeps things simple, which allows you to do Spend less time writing in Excel documents and spreadsheets on what your athlete's training is going to be and more time in the actual coaching. And it prevents you from losing those sheets of paper or that feedback and those emails that you got on what your athletes did because it's all there. So if you go to Final Surge or you look at our show notes, they're giving 10% off for um our listeners using the coupon code on coaching. So check them out. I use it. Excellent platform. And without further ado, we'll get into this week's episode, which I think will be a very interesting one. Uh, envisioning a track and field new world order, or as John said, <laughs> how to make track and field great again. That's right. Make track and field great again. Let's do it. We got enough shot now. Let's Let's go. All right. So, you know, it's interesting. We were chatting a little offline and we're really at this inflection point with uh, with COVID-19. And we don't, you know, none of us know exactly where it's going and what will happen and anything like that. No one does. And if they tell you they do, run away. Um, but what's very clear is that society the world is going to change for a little bit even if we start going back to work soon because like sports and mass gatherings and all those will be delayed uh for a long bit which means that track in general has this opportunity this window of um potentially doing things or revamping things in a way uh, that makes it fit we'll say the the new world right and i think this is this is seen. Um, this will be seen especially at the college level if football, for instance, isn't played this fall. Um, then you'll see some massive changes in, in track and other spring sports. So I think it's worthwhile of having that conversation on 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 almost maybe taking a positive spin on this and saying, okay, we have this this time in this period where, you know, track is probably going to change. How do we get ahead of the curve a little bit and start thinking um, creatively on, on what we want our sport to be and, and more so what is sustainable in the, um, the upcoming future? And I think we have to just step back too and understand – that sport, what we're seeing very, very clearly now, is just a form of entertainment. And entertainment is non-essential. It's very riveting. It can be a distraction. It can also be something that allows us um, common ground. Like Steve and I and all our peers have come together over running and coaching. It's given people from all walks of life that in all parts of the world and the country, and everyone listening to this podcast, 
something for us to come together on uh, with regularity and have a point of shared interest and shared ground. Now, it doesn't mean sports trivial. It just means uh, we have to see it for what it really is, which is entertainment. And that's where we in track, if you look back at history, we kind of missed the plot, um, so to speak, during the uh, great TV race of the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, where football, basketball, and even baseball, but more so football and basketball at the, their professional level, understood the magnification and the power that TV had from a um, financial gain model. We in track didn't have an organizing agent, like a league with a commissioner who oversaw this to steer us in that direction. And I think, you know, there's been a lot of talk about that, but first we just have to get to that basic understanding of the economics behind it and how that drives everything moving forward. And what we're seeing now during these early days of the pandemic outbreak and our response to it is it's at the end of the day, it's about economics. And if you don't have the capital to fund your labor and, you know, we don't necessarily think about uh, players or runners or um, coaches as laborers, but they are. They might be really high paid in some sports like NBA players are very high paid laborers, but they're out there physically sweating and that's how they earn their paycheck. They're not in control of the asset. The owner is or the commissioner has influence over that, right? So this is what Vin in Tracktown USA uh, tried to do um, with their summer series was it was a spotty um, kind of hybrid where they tried to create a, a series, not a league, but have it have um, echoes of a league with a draft and all these types of things, but no real like contracts or organizational structure in place. And so, you know, we just have to admit, say at the professional level, we relied too heavily on this idealism of the Olympic spirit and the amateur spirit that has uh, suppressed the financial um, earning power of our athletes, both at the uh, collegiate and professional level for too long. And now we can realize a new uh, way to do business because our business as usual in track and field is a very impoverished model. It's a very sporadic model. It's a very consolidative powered model um, where you have a very small number of um, people and decision makers who control a, a, a sum of money. And that tends to be the only money in the sport so that sum of money becomes perceived as the pot of money, but it's just a, a sum of money. But because no one else has any interest, business interest in our sport, that company uh, can, calls the shots because they're the ones who have the gold, right? And the old famous adage, he with the gold is the one who makes the rules. But now we have an opportunity to reimagine and redesign a, you know, more of an infrastructure that can afford a lot more um, parity and diversity in sums of money as long as we understand what are the key requisites and uh, organizational foundations that need to be in place moving forward. Yeah, you know, and I think on that, I think it's important to see what holds us back a little bit. Exactly. In track, one of our greatest things is our history, 
right? We've had this sport for over a hundred years, which largely hasn't changed. Uh, I mean, it has on the, including women and uh, expanding their events and stuff, but like the basic events and stuff like that largely hasn't changed, right? You could go to a track meet in the 1900s and <laughs> you would recognize nearly all of it, right? Mm -hmm. um, but if you look at other sports, like they they have made changes based on the idea that it is entertainment and not just a sport right yeah. if you look at the three-point line in basketball exactly three-point line in basketball came about because they realized okay we need to make this like more entertaining we need to change the dynamic so it's just not like the big man show of like mm -hmm coming under and donking and all that stuff. NFL has played with rules and goalposts moving back and forth and two point conversion option. Two, yep. Mm -hmm. It, all those things, uh, major league baseball has like instituted rules to quicken and speed up the game. Um, and then they've all made changes to like their playoffs, right? How they, how many teams get in, whether there's wild cards, all that stuff. The NBA is considering like radical, like a mid season tournament um, recently, things like that. And, it, you know, those are small tweaks, but like they are made to make the game or adapt the game to the changing environment right because they have a commissioner who realizes like our job is to sell entertainment and to be relevant um so sometimes like that means changing the nba of the 1970s like wouldn't work in today's like 2020 internet social media bite world so they have to change and adapt to that and i think track like we get stuck in the history and it's understandable but the way I'd say it is like look look at baseball, who's also like steeped in history, but like there are active discussions and active changes along the way, um, while keeping that history, but also realizing like, hey, baseball needs to change and adapt to be able to continue to grow, mm -hmm. and that's where I think we find ourselves in in track. So I I think like. We need to find a way to keep and celebrate our history, but to also adapt and grow. And I think that a lot of times we keep our history and we hold it sacred, but that doesn't, even if we adapt and grow and change, that doesn't change the sacredness of our history, right? Like you look at the NBA and we still, even though the game has drastically shifted, like we still like talk about Wilt Chamberlain you know, as one of the all-time greats and his, like, abilities and all that is is in insane. And, like, yes, the points per game and all those records, like, change and shift, but, like, they're not dependent on that, right? In track, we are dependent on our history to serve as the storyline, which is the one point that I'll, I'll end on here and let it, you jump in, John, is that all other sports have a coherent storyline that they can follow track and field really doesn't and i think this is an opportunity to ask what is our storyline and how do we create it in, in terms of that too creation is creation of value and this is the other thing that in past track and field had at the professional level and even at the collegiate professional level um for coaches has not done a good job of in every other sport, there's a dollar amount 
that is made public for how much that athlete is being paid by their ownership and or endorsement and coach as well, right? We know how much the Alabama football coach, head football coach is making. We can look up the amount the assistant's making. You know how much the starting quarterback and second string quarterback of the New Orleans Saints is making. You know their shoe endorsement deals. You know their underwear endorsement deals. Those Those numbers are public and those figures are a placeholder and a signifier of value. So if we're saying that, you know, Drew Brees makes this much money or Tom Brady makes this much money, or Steph Curry gets as much endorsement from Under Armour, we're saying that what is inherent is that individual's ability is tied to this much value. And that creates real, a lot of interest. And people, everyone understands the dollar amount. Everyone's like, oh, people don't, you know, tracks, they don't understand what it's like to throw a shot, put 75 meters. They don't understand what it's like to pole vault, you know, 19 feet. No, no, no. If you say that, this shot putter makes $5 million a year shot putting, people will get really interested in the shot put. (laughs) Like that's the thing, right? If you say, oh, this distance runner, this mill distance runner gets paid $30 million a year as a female to run 156 in the 800, you're going to be like, oh, that's really good because it's what it's tied to this dollar amount. This is the, the hardest part is, Companies have non-disclosure agreements in their contracts, so athletes and coaches can't say how much they're getting paid to endorse a certain product, right? So you may have, and that's the impoverished mindset of our sport, is no one else is paying anyone um, money. So these footwear companies are basically have all the keys to the castle and can call the shots. And because it's, uh, it's an act of actually suppression because other uh, you're not able to publicly announce how much money you're making because it's in your contract that you can't do that. It's non-disclosure agreement. You can't then have a, a clear, transparent playing field about, oh, this distance runner is getting this much from Saucony. This distance runner is getting this much from New Balance. This shot per is getting this much from Adidas. And we can't figure out what real value is. And so now we're left with only stats about that's far in comparison to, you know, the number nine time all time. Like, and this is why we lose the plot because it's not just about the stats on an event to event basis. So if you just said, oh man, this person scored 50 points in this game and 50 points in this game and 50 points in this game. And it's like, well, it's a rec league pickup basketball game. They're not, they're paying money to play. They're actually not making money. No one would care, but because it's a multimillionaire doing it and people are like, oh, that's why they're now you create this justification. That's why this person is worth a $9 million a year contract because look, he just scored 50 points in five games in a row and the team's on a five game winning streak. So this is like at the core of our of all discussions I've heard on in how to make track and feel great or how to like advance the sport, the core has always been shaping a narrative so the average consumer understands the stats or the marks about what's going on. No one, very few, if anyone has said, and I haven't heard it much, if we just told how much money these people were making off of endorsements and other revenue streams with transparency, 
people will get really interested if the dollar amount's high enough. But that, in the short term, would cost endorsers more dollar amounts per figure. But in the long term, because we had an idea about how much Usain Bolt makes, because Puma was transparent with that, or with Andre de Grasse, people got really interested to see, okay, this person's being paid multi-millions of dollars to run fast. Are they really that fast in comparison to their peers? And, oh, yeah, they are. Oh, my God. And so it creates this self-cascading um, narrative, which generates more interest because yeah you know whether you're a musician or an actor or oprah people want to know how much money you make because we are hardwired status seeking creatures and economics and the amount of money you you make in a capitalist society is the one thing everyone can relate to you know it's interesting whenever you're you you talk about you know the money and how it it brings value right and makes or it brings importance right it it sends a signal of importance i always think of uh, there was this a couple years ago there was this famous violinist i'm mistaking his name who played who i, I believe it was the washington post like teamed up with him and uh, uh made him play in the subway in washington dc yeah. right oh yeah yeah mm-hmm. and like for hours he played yeah, and yeah. yeah, just blessing and like busy and, and they just videoed it and they put it on, you know, fast forward up the speed and you could see like, you know, one or two people would stand around and then they leave and a couple of people would throw pennies or a dollar in and then they leave. But it wasn't like he had this huge crowd. And then the next, you know, the next day he plays um, in front of thousands at, uh, you know, some esteemed concert hall where the tickets are, you know, a hundred plus dollars, um, to sit in the seat and listen and hear him. And here you have this guy who's like, I remember he was playing on a Stradivarius violin, which is like mm-hmm. one of the rarest and, and, mm-hmm. and best violins that there is. And, and like in the, without the knowledge or understanding and without the like the the prestige around playing in a, a world renowned concert hall and being sold tickets like uh, you know a handful of people listen to this dude right. <laughs> and, it, yeah. and like despite him being literally like one of maybe the three best violinists in the entire world and like that story always sticks to me is like we need like signals of, hey, this is important and this is worth my time and attention. And we have a really hard time of recognizing like greatness regardless of it, what it is. We tend to fool ourselves. But I guarantee you that if you watched, if, you know, unless you're an expert at it, if, mm-hmm. if you went and watched a, um, a, a decent college baseball player, versus a really good major league baseball player if there was no no like signals around them you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between like a 90 mile per hour fastball and a 82 mile per hour fastball for the lay person it all looks the same and that's the same when you look at a four minute or a 405 miler running versus a 355 miler the difference to us means something but without that knowledge it doesn't mean anything and i think this is what you're getting at is that like we need to find a way 
to like send that signal that beyond just these people run fast like we need that signal these people are important these people like bring value they're worth paying attention to right i mean imagine the olympic trials narrative if the announcers knew how much money was on the line and how much like say base raise in someone's contract was on the line like i've worked with athletes where if they made an olympic team they got a 200 percent increase in their base salary like that's a big money and if you do the math like in their endorsement deal and they have multi years left on the endorsement deal and it's guaranteed like 200 percent increased over four years that's a lot of percents that's a lot of dollars like that's the difference between buying a second or third property having you know good investment uh, uh capital like and so if the announcer was like okay and this athlete here and you know she has a potential hundred thousand dollar base increase in her salary if she makes the olympic team so watch her and like you're all of a sudden going to be like this person's making you know seventy five thousand dollars a year but if she makes this olympic team in this race she's going to then now make a hundred seventy five thousand dollars a year you'd be like oh that's really interesting i will watch this now and like you may not give a shit about the 10k but now you're going to watch the 10k because you know what's on the line for each person financially not just this like i'm an olympian you know glory and prestige like i've met so many olympians or people who became or were olympians who were out of the sport in two to three years afterwards because it just didn't make any economic sense anymore because they got hurt or their contracts got reduced and reduced to reduce and they were making less than minimum wage annually on their running when you know several years before they're making a very you know decent living so i think we have to tell that um, fiscal narrative we have to make shed light on that like we have to know how much college coaches are being paid and a lot of people don't want to do it because it's a lot less than i think people think and want to actually say i get paid this much money relative to this assistant football coach right or like uh you know assistant to the assistant football coach and that has nothing to do like it's hard too because it has nothing to do with the value of the coach and the value of of what the service or what the labor that coach is doing it's just that in the old model football was this money-making machine where there's so much money uh, and basketball as well there's so much money exchanging hands because it's so valuable because the way at the college level it works without paying the late the 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 real labor which is the athletes anything other than tuition you are basically have all this money to spread around the higher levels of labor and the recruiters and the administrators etc and so what happens is you just enjoy those they just by dumb luck enjoyed those spoils because the way the entertainment machine was set up and people took advantage of it early in the early days the 80s and 90s it just was a force multiplier because when you read like 1980s i read a lot on like bill walsh bill parcells um joe gibbs like uh there's you know, uh, a great book um, by that, like kind of chronicles all three of them, um, Guts and Genius. And it's like these guys weren't making a lot of money early on, like in the late 70s and early 80s. These players weren't making a lot of money. Like they were really doing it. They were blue collar people. Like it was like, okay, you're making $40,000 a year as a tight end on the, you know, uh, 
Washington Redskins. Like, and you got a thousand dollar bonus at, for every playoff game you won. Right. So it's like, that was relatable dollars, even in the eighties. Now it's unrelatable, but we've put that value signifier on them as like, Oh, now what they do is so much more valuable than what, how valuable it was 30 years ago. No, it's the same job. The tight end still a tight end. <laughs> it's the same, but we've just created a narrative based on the signifier of this known dollar amount that has, you know, compounded exponentially over 30 years. Say, well, now a tight end's worth, you know, $40 million, you know, over a period of time instead of 40000 over a year. Yeah, it, it's interesting. So let's let's dive into that a little bit on the college side, which you mentioned there is um, in terms of salaries and the essentially football race supporting that. And I think this is one of the most intriguing, interesting spots where our sport can change. Um, because if you think about it, like college football is going to change like this year for for sure and maybe in the future. But but the way the system has been set up in the NCAA for so long is that you have the top, let's say, 15, 20 college uh, football teams making great revenue um, off of off of football. And then the, the rest or a large number of the rest who are in uh, the football championship uh, division um, or the FBS bowl division, whatever they call it, the top division, are like overspending money to try and like get into that, that realm where football brings in a ton so they're mm-hmm. over leveraging um to try and move up conferences move up to this power five etc cetera, etc cetera. essentially just my lottery tickets <laughs> yeah it, 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 but but now what you have is you have this this backlash where if football doesn't occur this fall which is relatively likely or if it occurs at best case scenario without many fans in the, in the stadium um that changes that calculation a lot. And now you don't have this trickle down to Olympic sports or other sports that occurs, right? And all of a sudden the crunch is going to happen not on the, not as much on the football side of where there's millions to coaches and stuff, but more on the Olympic sports like track where they're going to start saying and asking like, why are we spending, you know, a million dollars or a budget of several hundred thousand on uh, on a sport like this like why do you guys travel all over the place if you're not required to like why do you send a handful of people to stanford uh, across the country to stanford right when you can like there's a track meet down down the road mm-hmm. yeah, yeah texas el paso yep exactly <laughs> and it and I think this is the reality our sport is set up now under this model of like oh like most of us have like a decent amount of cash or budget like to be able to even the small schools send our kids to st- send a couple of kids to Stanford or Mount Sac or wherever to get get yep. their times mm-hmm. or the University mm-hmm. of Washington um, and our system is set up to like go to these meets chase these times qualify for regionals or nationals um, and do that but I think what you're gonna but track and field wasn't always that way right it it didn't always come out of this the system like that and I think what you're going to start seeing is or what needs to be thought of is how do we get back to a system that is sustainable because we are a money loser in college athletics a big time money loser how do we get back to a system that is sustainable so that track and field does not get on the chopping block 
right? That it's not said, why are we spending this much on, on these athletes? And I think that model is more of like a local regional model that like allows athletes to compete, but isn't dependent on flying all over the, the country um, to these large meets. Well, it's also too, you have to be able to trace or create a trajectory for a young laborer or a young athlete like they have done in football, basketball, and baseball, right? So, you know, right now at the high school level, there's this kind of like all these wars going on with especially basketball players. Like, you know, the high school basketball season is very irrelevant now. It's about the whole AAU special invites, like gaining influence early, right? Like these high school kids are free influencers and platforms for marketing for these shoe brands that then can help you know, uh, with all these kind of street agents and runners and people who are kind of massaging and influencing them. Okay, go to this school because it's sponsored by this shoe brand and then you'll get drafted by the NBA and you'll sign this endorsement contract with this shoe brand, blah, 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 so on and so forth, right? Um, but there is a clear path there to people that can easily ascertain it and go, okay, if you demonstrate and express your talent early because you, for whatever reason you had an early growth spurt, spurt as a young male, um, basketball, um, basketball male, you then get more resources early because you get more invites and more looks and more scouting and more and more and more. And that creates a nurture effect that compounds. And then you get, you know, to choose between, do I go to like Kentucky or Duke or UNC? And then you get drafted because you're going to those brand name school, basketball schools in the first round and so on and so forth. Right. Um, and then you have your lottery ticket the potential to win a lottery ticket to be one of like, you know, 60 players drafted in the NBA every year. Uh, you know, same with NFL, same, you know, you have the comp compound, compound, um, excuse me, combine, uh, which is essentially a way to increase your stock price. And even though we know there's very little correlation between how well an F a player does in the combine to how well, what their NFL career is going to look like. Um, but it's still a, a place where, Someone can increase their perceived value in the short term to get them to a higher projection of being drafted to then get that guaranteed paycheck. Because if you're drafted in a certain round, the NFL, there's guaranteed and non-guaranteed, right? And same thing with MLB, right? You have the feeder systems, the, the, the triple, single, double A mm -hmm. feeder systems, the major league systems. And you can have a clear trajectory as a laborer, as a player, about from high school, how to get into that structure of that system. We don't have that in track. It's if you're good enough, you might sign a modest endorsement deal, but now what's happened is it used to just be, okay, you sign an endorsement deal and you can, you're, you're a free agent about where you want to train and who you want to be coached by and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And now the brands have, you know, move towards consolidating like, no, we have our, our brand coaches. So if you sign with this brand, you must be coached by this brand coach, whether you like it or not, it's either get paid or not get paid. Right. And this has happened very quickly in the last five years behind more of a free market to more of a directed consolidated mindset, but there is no clear path. There's no like, Oh, if you know, I run this fast time here, that translates to increasing my stock price for potential signing with this, you know, company or getting on with this coach. Like we don't have that. So it gets really confusing and it's almost kind of like in some ways, like 
luck of who catches fire when. And it's like uh, Christian Strauss is a really good example of someone who's like talented athlete, good person, you know, ran 357 indoors at UW his senior year when the, no one else was running that fast, never won an NCAA title, but because he had this 357 indoors and it was fast at the time, for that cohort of collegians in that era it was really fat deemed really fast they're like oh this person has a really high stock price so they're probably we're going to take a risk on this talent and think okay this person is probably gonna be really good because they expressed this one fast mark early and you know or like say with someone with uh younger sports phenoms like a drew hunter or Sidney mclaughlin you know what happens is is it are they expressing one fast mark or one outlying result like i won one ncaa title i won ran one really fast time at azusa pacific or like say cindy mclaughlin do they have a uh, certain number of um results like a bigger data sample or bigger da data set a certain sample size of high level results okay you know won this title won this title, set this record, made this team, got this medal, boom, 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 boom. And that's the problem in our sport. We get so hyped up about one off, uh, a, a one off a mark. Like, oh my gosh, this person ran under 13 minutes once for 5k. Whoa. It's like one time in what conditions? Like, was it a perfectly set up team time trial? Was it at a world championship? Was it at a US championship? Was it an Olympic final? Like, was it a diamond league final? Where did this happen? And how many times did they do it? And yet we are so starved for narrative in our sport that we put so much stock into one, one time that we lose, that we miss the plot. It'd be the equivalent of being like, this person once scored 60 points in a game against... Yep. Crenshaw State, and now they're going to be LeBron, the next LeBron James. And you're like, huh? So, and I think that that is what we're getting at is like our storyline is so dependent on the one-off, and there's very little connection between them, right? It's mm -hmm. in you know that's one thing I'd love to see, even at the college level. Um, you know, the one thing the high school level does really well, and it's gotten away from this a little bit, but the storyline is coherent, right? Every, every state has their either districts or sections or regionals, whatever it is, right? They have their way to qualify for the state meet. And then whoever wins state, like, is the champion in that division, right? It's clean. It's coherent. And that it builds towards something, right? Right. Yeah. And but as as we get further, like into the college and pro level, you start like losing that a little bit. Like college, like it's like people understand nationals, NCAA's, but like you lose some of it because like things don't matter during the regular season. Like people don't. In high school, it's like you run against those you're, you're, you see most, right, in your area and stuff. In college, it's this hodgepodge of running together, and then you qualify in some weird way. And, like, then you go to maybe a regional system that is, like, just divided, splitting the country in two arbitrarily. 
And then we have the national championship and everyone understands the national championship. So it does like the best out of anything that we have, but there's, there's, we don't have as clear cut of this, like building towards something, right? This building of like things matter. Um, this is how we get there. And it's almost like we have two distinct things. We have this, like the way I would classify it is it's as if we have this exhibition season, um, and then we have a championship season, which is like one or two meets, right? NCAAs mm-hmm. and regionals are just NCAAs. And the exhibition season largely doesn't matter except for like, did you run fast or not? And that's it, you know? And then we have this conference championship thrown in there that has, again, very little meaning. <laughs> um, yeah. for, for, you know, some conferences because of history, again, have meaning because they have the history of it. But beyond the history, they have, it's it's nothing, you know? And I think thought needs to be taken into, like, we need to take these things into account. And maybe the, you know, the, the way I think about it is maybe the conference champ system isn't the way to go about it, right? You mm-hmm. look at, and you're seeing this right now, like, a couple different conferences have said, like, hey... Potentially, like if we don't have football, we're not hosting conference championships in uh, Olympic sports because that will save us millions, right? Just not hosting the championship. So you sit there and you think like, okay, like the way forward, like how much does the conference championship mean? Is it better to realign based on like state or regional like lines and have it mean something and then qualify for something? I'm not sure. But, like, I think those topics are worth, like, considering and understanding. Yeah, when you say exhibition and then, like, kind of championship season, I'm. it reminds me of basically athletes are kind of like musicians. Like, they just release an album whenever. Oh, I just dropped this track. And people are like, whoa, that's such a good, you know, track or a good album, right? But it it's... And then we make this big media fuss over that, right? Like they ran this time, they threw this mark, they jumped this far, whatever. Like that's this, essentially they released this like single. And and so, but how do we, and then we try to compare like, okay, this athlete ran this time at Stanford, this athlete ran this time at Azusa Pacific, this athlete ran this time at Oxy, this athlete ran this time at Portland Track Festival, et cetera. Or what you saw with like the marathon, right? Where you had all these pundits making all these predictions for the, Olympic trials marathons based off of very limited data, one or two races in a calendar year or in two calendar years, and then some workouts they did and their coaches' confidence in their workouts. <laughs> like, you know, it's, it, it, and then we, we try to put them in some type of comparative hierarchy, which is a championship meet, which is the equivalent of saying, okay, now this these people release these albums or tracks and now everyone's going to go on some type of, you know, uh, American Idol for uh, professional singers where you have an audience and judges and we're going to create a tournament out of it, right? Who can sing this song the best or what have you, right? And so it becomes really diffused because our stars are diffused because we just don't know who is the pre- premier star here and there. Like you can just pick the people you like as a fan, like, oh, I kind of like, you know, Katie Mackey, you know, because she's quirky or, you know, she has a really spunky personality or I kind of like Ajay Wilson or I kind of like, 
you know, uh, Evan Jagger, like, but you can't share that affinity for that like with a lot of other fans, right? The Dallas, um, you know, uh, Cowboys affinity is a pretty high, highly robust and unifying brand affinity. I mean, the Los Angeles Lakers affinity is pretty, you know, robust and highly Yankees, like you name it, right? This is brand affinity. Um, but the individual brand of an athlete, that affinity is so hodgepodge because there's just not an infrastructure or structure in place to make that person, um, that person's star power pronounced. And only very rarely do you get someone, one, a, a person who has all the like kind of brand tools, so to speak, that can eclipse that need for structural support and create their own superseded brand affinity like a Usain Bolt or LeBron James or Michael Jordan. These are very rare once in a generation type athletes. And it doesn't really matter what um, sport they play. It's it's a confluence. It's a multi-factor confluence of personality, um, athletic prowess, um, the media frenzy surrounding that person, you know, and then them being up to live up to the hype. And that's the key part, right? Jordan lived up to the hype. Uh, Bolt lived up to the hype. LeBron has spottily lived up to the hype, right? He's made a lot of NBA finals, but hasn't won a lot of championships. And Kobe, you know, Dick lived up to the hype, right? So it's like, that's also the thing we have to consider too, is these, these multifactorial um, pronouncements of ability. And then also this then furthering of uh, athletic expectation and then delivery on that expectation, which in the sport of running, as we know, in track and field is very hard to do because the conditions surrounding competition have a huge influence, right? And we know this because Stanford meets were all the rage. No one was going to U of H to run a 10K, <laughs> you know, like because the conditions were better suited in Palo Alto than Houston in the spring for a faster 10K. Yeah, no, if they're going to Houston to run a 10K, God help them. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's 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 interesting, and you make some good points there. And I think the more we talk about this on, like, okay, track and field is probably going to change, right? And, like, how do we do so, and how do we make it for the better? And I think now is your time to try innovative solutions. And I think we've kind of circled around a couple things, which is like a making a coherent story, like B making the sport more, more than just like this one off release a single and see how well it does. Um, type performance thing. And, you know, if I'm, I think one of the reasons we don't, do well at this is because we're this hodgepodge of collective organ organizations without um, a narrative and yes are out a leader and i think that yes like there's a downside to commissioners and the power in one hand or whatever that more major sports have but there's also an upside in that you have someone steering the ship and i 
I think if I'm someone like Sebastian Coe right now, I'm asking what direction do I want to steer the ship and and like is there a way to go about this? And I think the other thing that we need to consider and remind ourselves is that yes, well track is very reliant and dependent on the stars and these one-off stars like a Usain Bolt for example, like uh yes, they matter and are kind of ultimately bigger than the sport. But not to say this in in a bad way, but the vast majority of people, other people, are are replaceable and not replaceable in again a negative sight, but in the sense that like if you change out, you know, one runner who you know gets a silver with another, like there's a very little dr- drastic effect on the sport as a whole, and I think like instead of seeing that as a negative, we need to see that as opportunity of like, how do we create a system that allows like, not just a handful of stars to be the drivers, but some coherent story narrative system that elevates people from like one-offs to like actually creating uh, bands around them. And I think that if I'm co now or whoever, like I'm looking at, okay, let's tear down the old diamond league and like world challenge and whatever meets that we have that we can't really understand (laughs) as a fan, what they mean or what they do and how do we create systems in place that allow us to drive things. And that could be more of like, again, a global regional quote unquote system of like, instead of having like random athletes based on agents traveling to these uh, diamond leagues is like have some sort of North American or like North and South American like system, some sort of like European, some sort of Australian Asian system, right? Or series. And then have that build towards something so that you have consistent athletes showing up at at a series of meets so that you can build some sort of continuity and then it builds towards something. Right. Well I think you're you're dancing around a very important point and you know and to kind of wrap up it's like we have to be okay with changing how we think about the sport. And that's been the hard part is a lot of people want to go back to how it once was, like go back to the dual meet structure and put more emphasis on that in the collegiate ranks and high school ranks. And I don't think if we change how we view the sport. So at the high school level, most high school coaches are paid by the state to educate the athletes. And you have to remember that you're an educator, extracurricular educator of students. So this kind of win at all costs, cutthroat thing, like I don't think that's the right place for it. It's the right place for fundamentals, foundations, um, you know, using sport as a vehicle to teach extracurricular lessons that you might not get in the classroom. Now, as we cascade up the food chain, though, um, for track, we have to accept that now we're in an era where there are different genres. So let's think of it like music. Let's go back to music. There's a lot of music. There's classical music, country music, rap music, rock and roll music, oldies, uh, new age, like new, and so uh, techno, right? So there's all these genres of music. It's still music. And so the same is true with track. You have throwers, you have jumpers, you have hurdlers, you have sprinters, you have distance runners, you have long distance runners. So we, what we have to understand is we basically are trying to present a circus model. And the circus at one time 
was a very viable um, vehicle. Like, but last time I checked, Ringling Brothers went out of business pre-pandemic pre because it wasn't this model of, um, you know, World Fair circus that in the early 1900s, you only got one shot to really go out as a laborer because you were working six days a week or five days a week, 10 hour shifts in the factory. And so, okay, you have to basically like get all your exposure in, in a very short period. Now we have much longer and better tool, uh, much longer thresholds and better communication platforms and tools. So we can actually go more micro. And so we can be more genre focused. And that's a lot of the work I've done the last 10 years is trying to create a middle distance genre with these, like what I call boutique meets with Oxy, Portland Track Festival, Adrian Martinez, right? Starting all these things up, the Sunset Tour with Jesse Williams, like hatching those ideas and getting those to happen. It's just, we're focused on this small portion, like the road mile series that's happened. Like it's given people viability. The street meets, right? We should have more of just pole vaulters want pole vault. Those pole vault summits in Reno, that works really well. Jumpers want jumpers, throwers want throwers. And you can a la carte and pick which one you identify with and resonate with. And then make, if I was co, I'd make presidents of each genre. So like, or people who would oversee, okay, you're going to oversee the distance runners. You're going to see over the middle distance runners. You're going to oversee the sprinters. This, and like, it becomes then these genres go compete or play at different venues, that genre only. And then very like at the end of the year or whatever, then all the genres get together for this big carnival concert where they're all happening you know, kind of in our normal model that we have now, but staggered. So, cause who wants to listen to Garth Brooks while Britney Spears is playing while Yo-Yo Ma is playing. And that's what track meet really is, right? You have too many things going on at once. We need to just streamline that. So it's one thing that one audience can pay attention to. And that happens really well at the Olympics. That happens really well at the world championships, but that's where we need to go is just embrace that genre model and that reality so that we can have these micro uh, niches and then come together when it makes sense um, for these more traditional events like a world championship or Olympics or U.S. championships or what have you. But understand there's going to be like a new era, new era of events and then a traditional events. And that's the same thing for college too. Like if UH wants to become middle distance sprint U, we say, okay, we're going to diversify in these two things. And that's where we put all our eggs in our basket. That's f totally fine. I think, you know, but then you have to have different structure and uh, governance over those genres and then have a, a way for those, all those genre focused programs to then come together to say, okay, well, we're still going to compete in a traditional set at the NCAA championships where points across all events count. And if you want to load up everyone in the pole vault and make that a way to win a team title as a pole vault focused genre school, good for you, you know, but that would be a really interesting storyline to see what program could have the more powerful genre or genre focus um, and still be able to compete and show their prowess in a traditional model at, at the end of the season, like in say championship. That's my idea at least. Yeah, no, I love the genre. And I think you see that successful in places maybe like Japan, where they have almost this like marathon, marathon slash ekaden genre. 
that does mm-hmm. really well. And like, I think it's, it's time to accept that like some genres aren't going to do as well in certain areas and that's okay. You know? Um, but like that is like track and field. The great thing about it is it's very diverse. The bad thing about it is it's very diverse in the terms yeah. of it's a, a, <laughs> a mis- sword. <laughs> yeah. It's a mismatch of like, you know, random things and all that stuff, you know? So, um, in a way you see this in the marathon, right? Where you have like the major marathons, which tell us how much prize money they get. And like, they're focused on one event and it's for two hours and change and all that stuff. And, but like people still tune in and come out and watch the New York city marathon or the Boston marathon. And the TV ratings are surprisingly like really good for like a New York city marathon or Boston Mm -hmm. marathon. Um, And I think that like we need to think about and embrace it. And especially at the the professional level is a, it's like time to take this on. So it has a theme when you have go for a genre based approach like you have a theme you have continuity you have athletes who you're used to seeing and all that stuff and it's an event that you like and you can do crossover obviously in it but i think building towards something like the olympics obviously works right the world championships sometimes works depending on where it is um, yeah, yeah. so maybe more consideration for that um but like those models work to degree, but like, it doesn't mean we can't refine them just like the, um, the NBA and MLB and even NFL refine their playoffs, um, every, you know, 10 years or so, um, when they change things. And it's important to note that like the NFL, the MLB, the NBA playoffs, like those all kill, right. But they're still refining them because they know they have to adapt and grow. And I think yes. we need to take on that experience of adapt and grow. Like, what do we need to adapt and grow with? We've spent way too long not doing it. So how do we move forward? Exactly. So we'll we'll leave you guys with uh, those thoughts to chew on. If you have any ideas of yourself, again, we don't have all the answers. We're just putting the question out there. Feel free to contact me or John. Uh, shout us out on Twitter. Uh, you can find all that stuff in our show notes. And once again, thanks to our sponsor, Final Surge, uh, which you can see uh, or, and you can check out in our show notes and get a coupon for 10% off of their platform. Highly recommend. And until next time, everybody, thanks again for listening. And uh, thanks for being part of our little uh, program that hopefully is doing something for the sport of running and track and field.